Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is fondly nicknamed the Waffle Queen. Dr. Glennis Albright is the CEO of the world-renowned Glennis's Kitchen. Her recipes have been tasted and loved by the likes of John Legend, Patti LaBelle, and so many others. But food isn't just her success, it's her lifeline. After being diagnosed with leukemia in 1994, Dr. Albright used her culinary expertise to help herself and others heal from medical illness. Today, we'll dive into her journey of nourishing her body and mind with healthy, nourishing, and delicious food. Glennis, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So, Glennis, you are known as the Waffle Queen. You have grown this enormous following as a result of your cooking and also because of your kind of dynamite personality. I want to take the listener here back to your childhood, your young adulthood, and tell me about food and what it meant to you back then. First of all, I'm originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. So, you know, that place, we love food. All the people there, we love food. At the age of 10, that's when my food journey really began. I started cooking and baking for my family. My father became disabled. He was in a really bad car accident. So that meant my mom had to go back to work and I had to be the one after I got in from school to prepare the meals. And uh, Julia Childs and Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet, they became my friends. I started watching them on television. So while the kids were outside playing, I was inside watching the cooking shows. Fast forwarding to the 90s, my life took a huge turn. I was diagnosed with a rare blood disease and my relationship with food changed. You know, before I ate food because I was hungry, you know, I needed a snack or something like that. But now I eat food to live. I eat food for nutrition. I eat food to fight against dis-ease. So things have changed, and not only for me, but also for my family. And I also wanted to share that love for food and my relationship with food with other people who were like me and those who are challenging an illness. It sounds like based on my understanding of your story, that your relationship with food was sometimes complicated and maybe unhealthy at times in your life. And I think so many people struggle with a relationship with food. You know, food for most people has more than just a hunger satiety role. It has, there's, there are emotional inputs. So can you talk to me about what that was like and what, what food was to you beyond just nourishment? At first, my relationship with food, I would say, was unhealthy because I skipped meals. I ate on the run. 
I ate too fast. I didn't chew my food well. You know, I was living a really fast paced life. And then when you start having children, you, you know, you're snacking here, you're snacking there, you're grazing all day as opposed to eating the proper three meals with snacks in between. So that was my relationship. Sometimes I would go a whole day without eating because I was just too busy working or dealing with my kids or dealing with my husband. So I had all these different excuses why I just grabbed a snack and kept going. It wasn't even about losing weight. It was just, well, you know, I'll eat, I'll get it later. And that was very unhealthy. It's so interesting. You're not unlike a lot of women who are just trying to get through the day. Parenting, working, and food becomes sort of an afterthought. Did you ever become a victim of what I would call diet culture and the sort of like taking advantage of women's vulnerabilities and making them think that you have to eat in a certain way to be healthy or look a certain way to be healthy? Was that ever something that you, you dealt with? At some point in my life, I think, especially as a young adult and after you have children, you start reading different things. Oh, you got to eat right. You have to have your three meals. And when you go to the doctor's office, he would say, okay, I'm looking at the chart and you are five foot one and a half and you should be at this weight, but you're at this weight. And so I began to feel a little bit self-conscious of myself because I had a certain build. I have an athletic build. And some people would tell me, oh, girl, you're fine. You know, muscle weighs more than fat and the whole bit. And then my family would say, mom, you have a large bone structure. So 135 for you would be different than 135 for someone else who may look a bit heavier because I was mostly muscle. So, yeah, I did struggle a little bit with, with stuff like that because you're always trying to please your doctor. You're trying to look good for society because, you know, society puts certain pressures on us. So after a while, I believe probably teen, 20s, I began to feel a little self-conscious about my looks and whether I was too fat or too skinny and too bulky. I, I look like a tomboy or did I look like a woman? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I did struggle for a minute. I think it's good to to acknowledge that for people who adore you and follow you in particular. Also, of course, for yourself, because naming and recognizing the complicated relationship with food that we often have, particularly as women, can really help us kind of anchor our everyday behaviors. In other words, so many people walk around with a sort of low-grade sense of shame about their body or how they eat, and they're not acknowledging those feelings, and they're yet going around sort of grazing and snacking and kind of vaguely restricting during the day, sort of avoiding regular interactions with food, when actually to be healthy means to sit down with a meal and register satiety and feed ourselves instead of being a constant state of restriction and busyness. It's really about mindfulness with food. And I think as you learned over time, Food is the best way to nourish our bodies. It's also the, the way we nourish our minds. And satiety is, is healthy. I mean, when we are satiated, we are less anxious. We are less impulsive. We are calmer. So you went on to get a PhD in natural health and food science. Tell me about how that came about and where did your cancer diagnosis fit into it? Oh, gosh, my cancer diagnosis always fit into everything, even though I never really wanted to talk about it a lot because I never wanted people to feel as though I wanted pity or sympathy, but it was the core of everything. I wanted to go back to school to learn more about the importance of nutrition for healing because so many of my friends, 
acquaintances, family members, I watch them suffer with various cancers, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity. And I knew that there was something that I wanted to contribute to society. Just our culture, our Black culture, the way we ate years ago, you know, lots of butter, sometimes lard, lots of sugar, salt, seasonings, and that kind of thing. And many of my relatives passed away due to, you know, heart attack, stroke, diabetes, the, you know, all that came with it. And you start looking at yourself, especially after you have children. Wait a minute, I want to be here for them and I want to be here for my grandkids too. How can I stop the process or just make my body better? The core of everything was what I went through. For those two years, I went through my storm. And then, of course, there's the aftermath of it. You think that it's over in two years, but it's not. You have to continue to take care of yourself or else whatever it was will be again. Never wanted to say, oh, I'm in remission because re means again. I would say I'm healed, but I have to do my part. Prayer, yes, but prayer without action is just words. So I had to make sure that I did my part as well. The cancer was the core of everything that I do making sure the ingredients are right. Linda, can you talk to me about what that moment was like when you got the diagnosis and what that storm was for you? Wow. Oh, let's see. When I was first diagnosed, I kept it to myself. I was afraid. I'll be honest. I was afraid. Like some people, I figured it was the wrong diagnosis. Oh, it's going to go away. We do some tests again. The results will come out differently. I'm a good person. I'm a good mother. I'm a good wife. This can't be happening to me. I'm only 35 years old. So it was, it was a lot to take in. And then um, my doctor left a message. And back then we had what was called answering machines. And my husband heard the message. And he says, hey, what's going on? Are you holding something in? Something you need to tell me? Uh, you know, the doctor says, hey, you need to get it together. Or else I would not reach my birthday. I wouldn't be 36. He told me to come back in. We need to run some more tests. And the address that he sent me to was different than the doctor's office. And when we pulled up, it was the cancer center. So my heart sank. My husband's heart sank. And we just sat there in the parking lot and prayed and got ourselves together before we went in. It was a day of awakening. It was a day of silence. It was a day of prayer. And I was scared. That's the main thing. I was so scared because I was so unfamiliar with going into a place where everything was just so sterile, so quiet, and all these lines on the floor for you to follow to go in this room and that room. So many gowns with the butt out. <laughs> so many straight faces. It was a cold day. Even though it was August 13th, it was a very cold day. It felt cold in that place. Yeah, I mean, you're describing the mix of emotions I think so many people have when they're faced with their mortality and get a diagnosis like you did. First, sort of denial, bargaining, fear, and then that kind of moment of sobriety, if you will, where you realize what the reality is. And you fought for your life. Yeah, I looked at my two kids. At the time, Selena was 12 and Brandon was four. I had two little geniuses on my hand. Selena was 
entering into high school and Brandon was entering first grade. And to hear my four-year-old say, I don't care what you look like. I just want my mommy. I mean, what, what can you do? What can you say to that? The confusion on my daughter's face when once a week we would do each other's hair and it's called oiling your scalp where we would part the hair and, you know, put the oil in, massage it in. And for her to comb my hair and for clumps of it to come out, it was frightening for her, for me to have to explain what's going on in a way that wouldn't frighten her. And I knew she was very smart and she would catch on. It was a trying time to go through. I had to make a decision. Do I run out and tell everybody so I can have this group of people helping me? Or do I only talk to a chosen few? And that decision was made for me. I found out when I was going through my storm that there would only be a chosen few and that the people who were there were those who chose me. Those who I chose were not there. That was the biggest pill for me to swallow, to be the one who would always be there for everybody and then to find yourself alone with strangers who are willing to give you what you need and not even care who you are. Strangers who may not look like you, who are saying, I'll give you blood. I'll give you whatever you need, platelets, whatever. What, what do you need? And they're not your close friend. That was the biggest pill to swallow. To let all of my so-called friends know, I need to concentrate on Glennis now. So you probably won't hear from me for a while. I won't be calling a chit-chat. I won't be running up and down the freeway to help you or whatever. That now it's about my life. And if you're going to be there to support me, I would embrace it. But if not, I have to concentrate on me right now. I think you described so beautifully what a lot of cancer patients experience, not just the toll of losing your hair or the physical manifestations of chemotherapy, but the effect on relationships, the effect on our children, how parenting changes, how showing up in the world changes, how you see people that you thought had your back not be there. And then you see total strangers show up for you in the strangest of times. And there's no playbook for how to do this. There's no there's no manual for how to talk to your daughter when she's doing your hair and the hair is falling out in clumps in her hands. How did you get through that? What sources of strength did you have outside your circle? My faith. One of my doctors, Dr. Joseph Aqua, he challenged me when I came in for my appointment. And he said, you have to make some decisions in your life and you need to challenge your faith, not every day, but every minute and every second. And the second thing he told me was, you also need to accept people where they are at that point in their lives. That not everyone is going to deal with illness like you do. Says, you know, you're, you have a special gift. You're like a caregiver. You like to take care of people and not everyone is like that. Some people will run away. And I had one person say something to me and that's when it clicked. She said, I would love to come and visit you, but I don't want to see you that way. I want to see the strong, cutesy, perky Glennis. I don't want to see you the other way. So if you've changed, I don't want to come and visit you. She was just expressing how she felt. She was honest. She was honest, but at the time, it hurt. It cut through me like a knife. 
But when my doctor said, you have to accept people where they are. And that's what I wasn't doing because I wanted to be surrounded by all these people who I thought loved me and care for me. And when I saw the circle was so small, I had to accept those people in my circle. And it didn't mean that I didn't love the others. I just knew that I had a check. Okay, I can depend on them for this, but not for that. So you begin to prioritize, compartmentalize, just put everybody in their place. And it's okay. It's okay, because I'm sure that people put me in a certain place too. You have this amazing amount of empathy and and compassion for others, even when they don't show up the way you want them to. And I know that meant that it was a tough pill to swallow, seeing people kind of float away in your life that you thought were going to be there for you. You also literally took a tough pill. Chemotherapy itself made you very, very sick. And I think that's when you realized you needed to look at a more holistic way of feeding your body. Yes, I did it once and stopped and said, there has to be a better way. And that's when I went in to see Dr. Joseph Aqua, who did everything was holistic, naturopathic route. And it took longer. So I guess when those people go through chemo, it may be, you know, three months, four months or whatever. It took two years with follow-ups. I'm still doing follow-ups. I still have to do my, my checkups, do my blood tests every three months. So I have to still do my part. You know, it's not something that goes away. And it was during this time that you went to night school to get your PhD and parent your children. And run to locations of Just Sweet Enough. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about Just Sweet Enough, your first culinary business. I decided during my storm, I figured out that foods were not just food. That every fruit, every vegetable, every herb, and every spice has a reason. You know, God planned all this stuff. He gave us all this, this beautiful garden of, of, of all these things for us to eat, for nourishment. And after asking my doctor what foods I should eat that would not inflame my illness, that's when a light switch went off. Well, okay, if I can only eat this, 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 and this, and cut out all these things, then what if I created a food line that had only those things in it, but I want them to taste good. So most times when people are diagnosed with something that is life-threatening, desserts, stuff that has lots of good sugar and salt in it, those are the things that are taken away. So why not come up with a dessert line, just sweet enough, that would have those nutrients in it to help people like me. First, it was just me, I was cooking for myself and baking for myself. And then I started sharing it. So every time I would go in twice a week for my treatments, I would leave these cute little boxes and they were filled with either cookies, little pound cake slices, or little mini pies. So it's like sweet potato pies made a certain way, chocolate chip, walnut cookies, oatmeal raisin pecan cookies. I mean, everything would change every week. It would change and I would leave them. And after a while, people started saying, where's the cookie lady? Is she here today? Or where's the cake lady? Or where's the pie lady? So I had all these different names because they didn't know who I was. And I didn't leave a name. I would just leave gifts. And after a while, people started putting two and two together. A friend of mine, William Allen Young, named my product accidentally. 
he just happened to come over and he and his wife, my best friend, he said, you know, I love your desserts. They are just sweet enough. <laughs> and I said, oh, that'll make a good name for my food line. And to this day, he doesn't remember naming it, but that's when Just Sweet Enough came about. So I opened my first shop in 1996, and that was just for packaging and shipping out product to other people. And then 2001, I opened my second shop. Now this place, you can come in and eat. I had 11 employees. You can look in kind of like Krispy Kreme. You see the light on. This is desserts baking. People would drive by and come and pick up their cakes, cookies, and pies. And everything that I created, there was a reason. For instance, the sweet potato pound cake. Sweet potatoes loaded with fiber, beta carotene, all the stuff that I needed. It was for people who were going through cancer. So they would come in and I had doctors that I would work with and they would tell me what product to give to which person. And then that's when my friends start saying, Glennis, you need to just go back to school. You can do this. You can do this. So that's why I was going to school at the same time. But all the flavors from French vanilla, from apple cinnamon to zucchini carrot and everything in between, there's a reason. So all the fruits, vegetables, herbs, and spices was put into the cake cookie or pie. And when people would come in to buy something and I would talk to them first and ask what they're going through. I would go, okay, you need this cookie, you need that cake, you need that pie. So it became just sweet enough shops became a place for not only for healing, because I didn't promise anything, but it gave them hope. And it was a place for you to feel good and a place for you to just relax, have a hot cup of tea and a piece of cake. And I would always allow my customers to taste everything first before they purchased. It's so wonderful. It's like you were the community pharmacist, but with the fun of giving people things that they want that they thought they couldn't have. Yeah. And that was the whole idea behind the Just Sweet Enough line was to get the dessert to taste as close to the real deal as possible. Because, you know, in chemistry, there's a threshold. Too sweet, just sweet enough, not sweet. And so I use real sugar. The sugar is real. It's natural. I didn't use artificial sweeteners because I knew what they do to the body. No food dyes. Why would I use red and yellow when there's cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, vanilla extract? Why would I use yellow dye when there's turmeric, which is also a cancer preventative? So all these different herbs and spices, things, they're all right there. They're in our pantries. And there's a reason for everything. So I began to research. That's why I had to go back to school. Research what food is for, what, what nutrients am I going to get from this? And how can it help a person who is dealing with high blood pressure or obesity or diabetes and that kind of thing? And after a while, I was just known as the sweet potato pound cake lady and later the waffle queen. <laughs> so I want to get there to the waffle queen glory. But first, tell me when you started eating like the way you were cooking for other people during your treatment. How did it make you feel physically, mentally, when you were eating healthy and, and using natural foods and whole foods to feed your body? I began to get stronger and stronger. And that's when you want to share it because you're like, oh, wow, wait a minute. I don't feel any pain anymore. And then you say, it must be because of this, this. You try to figure out what has changed in my life. And my diet was the main thing that had changed. And then you feel so good. You want to share that for free. Were you eating more or less? Or were you eating on a different schedule? Or was it just the, the ingredients were more whole? The ingredients were whole. The ingredients were flavorful. 
the ingredients were just tasty. When you add in flavor, I found that you don't need to add in a lot of sugar and salt. My favorite cookie is oatmeal raisin pecan. So if I use more raisins and I use more nuts, more vanilla, cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, I used less sugar. I used less butter. And then even the butter started changing too. It's like, okay, let me find out if there's a vegan butter I can use. And so I just started experimenting with all these different things. And I'm like, wow, you know, when you turn the food part around, it really does taste good and it makes you feel better. And then I wanted to share it with all my friends first and then with strangers to say, hey, look what I have. And it was hard because when you say lower in sugar, lower in fat, lower in sodium, but it's delicious. Most people looked at me and go, oh, no, it's probably dry and it probably tastes like grass or, you know, hay or whatever, or a piece of paper. <laughs> but all I asked for them is to give me a try. So that's why I always had tasters. And I knew as soon as they tasted it, I had them in the palm of my hand. I want to hear about the cookie dots because you're kind of known for the cookie dots. Can you tell me about those? Yes. Cookie Dots was created in 2003. I met a doctor, Dr. Mal Foby, who created the Foby pouch, which is a form of gastric bypass surgery. And a lot of celebrities have had the Foby pouch done. I met with him to find out what is it that his patients need who are morbidly obese, which means that they are 100 pounds overweight. He told me that his patients needed, because they didn't become morbidly obese overnight, they needed taste, something to taste good. They needed texture, because you know that's why we chew texture. They needed something that was a little sweet. And they needed something that was small enough so that if they ate it, they wouldn't regurgitate. Because remember, their stomachs are going from the size of a football to the size of a walnut. Can you come up with something? And that's where little cookie dots came into play. So they're cute little shortbread cookies. And the flavors of the cookies also matched whatever you were going through. So we had 23 different flavors from French vanilla to sweet potato to Earl Grey, because eventually I started infusing tea into the uh, different flavors of cookie dots. But I, at first I started out with six flavors. We had French vanilla, lemon, which is a fat burner. Remember vanilla makes your stomach feel good. Peach and strawberry. Those were sold to and given to various cancer centers because peaches and strawberries help to fight cancer. Orange, mainly for people who are anemic, needed energy. And chocolate mint, dark chocolate, antioxidant for people with cardiovascular disease. So I started out with those six flavors. People love them and they wanted more flavors and more flavors. People would come in and go, okay, do you have this flavor? Do you have that flavor? So I called myself the Baskin Robbins of cakes and cookies. <laughs> Because, you know, Baskin Robbins with 31 flavors. I'm like, okay, I got to beat it. I got to get more than 31 flavors. But again, with all the fruits and vegetables that we have, we just have a whole menagerie of, of flavors that we can do for cookies and cakes. And that's what I decided to do. What was the hardest part of changing your own diet for yourself? I mean, what was the biggest barrier to you making changes in your own diet? Eating the three meals. Because... When I was younger, I ate three meals. You had to. But as my schedule became more and more congested, I started skipping meals. I didn't want my kids to skip meals, but I would skip meals. Like I said, I was just too busy and I would skip breakfast. That was the first thing I would skip breakfast. And then lunch, you just grab something. It could be a piece of fruit, 
a cookie or whatever, just to say I put something in my stomach. And then by dinner time, I am famished. And you know, when you sit down and you're famished, you start eating and eating and then you're full. <laughs> and half your plate is still full, you know? And that wasn't a good thing. So that was pretty hard for me to change up because you become habitual. It became a habit. So many people eat like that intentionally or unintentionally, they they sort of don't get quite enough during the day, they never get satiated, and then the floodgates open because, of course, hunger is part of the human condition, and then people overeat, and then they're not hungry for breakfast, and then the cycle begins again. And it actually promotes weight gain to eat too little during the day. Sometimes people lose weight and drop their blood pressure and their cholesterol by eating more. So losing weight isn't always about eating less. It's about eating smarter and eating more whole foods and triggering satiety in our brains. Especially as women, because, you know, we're so hormonal. We have to deal with all that, losing weight, gaining weight, and then to skip meals thinking, okay, yeah, okay, I'm going to drop those pounds. And your body is saying, okay, so you're not going to feed me until five o'clock tomorrow. So this amount of food that I have right here, I'm going to store it <laughs> so I can survive for the next day, you know, instead of saying, okay, let me burn it off. No, you end up just gaining more weight. You have got it. I mean, if I could just bottle you up and hand that out to my patients, it would save people a lot of agony. Maybe they just should start eating your food. But Glennis, tell me how you went from the cookie dots and just sweet enough to being the waffle queen and being Glennis Albright. Okay. Grew up poor. As I told you, I had to become creative watching Julia Childs and the Galloping Gourmet with food. By the time I got to college, I was on a very, very strict budget because I was on full scholarship, which paid for tuition, books, and my apartment. And then I worked a part-time job at Bullock's, doesn't exist anymore, right in Westwood, right across the street from UCLA. So I began to make different things to eat to keep myself full, waffles. So I started making waffles, pancakes, and crepes because I love them. So whenever my friends would come over, they knew what they were going to get. Waffles, pancakes, or crepes. My boyfriend, my junior high school sweetheart, who's also my boyfriend in college, who's now my husband, he would come over and he would say, girl, you got to fix some more waffles. I've burned through so many waffle irons. Then after a while, it just became a tradition. After marriage, all my friends who would kind of make fun of me and go, okay, are we going to eat waffles and pancakes and grapes again? Now it's, girl, can you please make some of those waffles? So that's how I became the waffle queen. 1977, during my sophomore year, that's when I created the recipe. And 43 years later, in 2017, I released Glennis's Waffle Mix. And the coating mix came because you got to eat waffles with something else. So in college, it was scrambled eggs and sizzling turkey bacon. I don't know if you remember that. If I had a good month or a good week with money, then it was fried chicken or fried catfish, or I would have fried shrimp if I really had some money, fried shrimp. So it was just one of those things where I mixed a little bit of New Orleans in with the waffles kind of thing. And then later, I guess it was in 2001, two, somewhere around that time, I heard of Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in L.A., and that was the place where all the musicians would hang out. So I didn't even realize that the whole chicken and waffles thing existed. It was something that I did because it wasn't a New Orleans thing. It was just a Glennis thing for me. 
it was an easy thing to fix and eat. And it was a filler. And after a while, the Waffle Queen became my name. And 2017, when I had my launch party, one of the former buyers for General Mills whispered in my ear, you might be making history today. And I said, really? She said, yeah, because your likeness, your name, you're a businesswoman, you own your business, you own your name. And look at this product. You're on the box of a waffle mix, pancake mix box. Do you know the story of Angel Mama? And I said, no. She says, go home and do your research. And then she walked away. So I went home and I did my research and found out that Angel Mama is not a real person. It was a fictitious character. And then the whole Waffle Queen thing really, really made sense. Everyone all over the world just started calling me the Waffle Queen. I love it. Even when you and I were texting last night, you were signing your texts, Glennis, the Waffle Queen. I love it. <laughs> and I put a little crown behind it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. So Glennis, you already were accomplished businesswoman, influencer, and then you started your own nonprofit, Maine, M-A-N-E, Making Advancements Towards Nutritional Empowerment. Can you tell me about how that got started? Here's why it started. We'll go back to the beginning of our conversation. What things I went through mentally when I was going through my storm. When any person is going through their storm, not only are they dealing with the pressures, the stresses, the fears of the disease itself, but also your appearance. And for women, now things are a bit different. Things have kind of changed a little bit. Last three years, women are becoming more liberal and about hair and the whole bit. But back when I was going through all my stuff, the five things that I found that society pressured women about hair, skin, teeth, nails, and weight. And when you think about it, even on a blind date, not to male bash, a man would ask, is her hair short? Is it long? Is she pretty? Is her skin nice? Does she have teeth? Are they pretty? Does she have a nice smile? Is she fat? Is she skinny? Are her nails looking nice? And those are the things that will change when you're going through that tough illness. You might lose all your hair, some of your hair, clumps of your hair. Your skin will lose its luster of gold or orange or green, whatever your base color is. You may lose your teeth. Your nails will become like paper and peel off just from tapping them. Your weight may go up or down depending upon what medication you're given. So if those five elements are what society judges us by, especially women, and other women will judge me by, that was the, the big key. Why not start an organization that would help you with those things? So through Maine, not only will I educate you on nutrition, but I'll also purchase wigs for you to feel comfortable. If you want to wear wigs, some people say, well, let me just sport the ball head or whatever. Now more women are doing it, but back then they didn't. You would lose your job if you didn't look a certain way because you had to fit in. You, you know what I mean? So just imagine you being a hostess for a restaurant or the receptionist for a big firm and you're going through your storm. They may choose someone else to sit at that front desk because you're representing this firm and they don't want anyone sitting up there who they feel doesn't look perky and hair flowing, beautiful smile and the whole bit. So I knew what I went through, just those fears and those discomforts. 
So I wanted to form an organization that would help women and men to replace the things that they needed to give them the self-esteem that they had before. So I would ask them to come in and whatever hairstyle, they were bringing pictures, whatever hairstyle they wore before, we would find a wig that would match that. You can wear it before you start chemo. So if you start losing your hair, you can put it on and feel more comfortable or after whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with. Get your nails done. We pay for that. Pay for your eyebrows, your eyelashes. So anything that you need, I want it to be the person that you would call for help. And that's where Maine comes from. That's how it all started. In 2015, I became a 5013C. You've done so much in your life. It's pretty amazing how you really turned your love for food, your love for helping others, and then your cancer diagnosis into an empire. And it sounds like it not only has helped others, you've helped yourself be healthy mentally and physically. And, and, I, and I'm sure it's ongoing everyday work. As you said in the beginning, you're never really cancer free. You're living with that fear and potential all the time. So what is your day to day life look like in terms of how you eat and how you prepare food? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's a tough one because I still get fussed at by my family, mainly my husband, if I skip a meal. I'm sure you've had breakfast, right? I've had breakfast and lunch. Mm, well, <laughs> I haven't had breakfast yet. It's still, well, oh gosh, it's almost 12. You got to eat breakfast. You got to eat breakfast. On a good day, I will get up and have some fruit. And my husband hates it, but I'll have a meal replacement shake. I got a tough day and I can't sit down and eat breakfast. I want to put some kind of nutrients in my body. For the most part, sometimes we'll sit down and we'll have breakfast. Gerald is the breakfast person. He's the morning person. I'm the night owl. I'm trying, I'm in the process of converting over to a day walker. I've been a vampire for so long. It's so hard to turn that body clock around. Oh my gosh. So I'm working on that. I got to get back to eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So when I get off with you, I will probably eat some fruit and drink some, some juice or have a hot cup of tea with some toast. And then I have a lunch meeting at 1.30. So I'm going to eat a nice big lunch. And then tonight is grandma duty. So I'll have a dinner with my grandkids. So, you know, when I'm with them, I have to do it. I got to do it right because I don't want them to pick up any bad habits. But I'm working on it. I, I really do need to eat better as far as uh, getting those three meals in because I know that if I don't, it can take me back to where I was. Yeah, it's good that you're aware of it. And it's good that you have your husband as a breakfast person, as a morning person, and for anybody who's listening, her husband is jazz musician Gerald Albright. Yes, he is. So together, you guys are just creative wonders. Thank you. Thank you. And I have wonderful kids, too. I'm sure they're wonderful. And your grandkids. Yes, yes. Wonderful grandkids. Yep. So, Glennis, it's it's really been wonderful talking to you. We share the same view, I think, that health is about not only the results of our blood tests, and the number on the scale, it's about our everyday health habits. It's about our sense of agency. It's about having tools in the toolbox to manage the speed bumps that come along our, our way, along the journey. And it's not about saying, no, you can't have that. Like in the case of a cancer patient, you can't have sugar. It's about saying, how about you have this instead? Or how, let's find other ways to have joy. And actually, we could actually do better with something that's just sweet enough. Yeah, I made um, a friend of mine was just diagnosed with leukemia as well, but a different form of leukemia. 
And so I made him what I call my healing brownies. So just imagine these dark, delicious, gluten-free, dairy-free brownies with broccoli, kale, collard greens, carrots, and raspberries in it. I'll send you pictures of it, me step-by-step. I love it. (laughs) To hear it, you go, oh gosh, collard greens and kale and broccoli, all that. But all that green stuff, you don't even see it anyway. But you see the carrots and you can see the raspberries. So I had the raspberries in to give it that chocolatey fudge raspberry flavor. So again, you know, food, it's just so good. The, the ingredients that are out there, the foods that are out there, they're just so good for us. We just, just eat them, mix them, experiment with them. That's wonderful. I can't wait to order your waffle recipe, your waffle mix, and to start doing some cooking of my own because... I'm a busy woman like you, and I kind of do a lot of eating on the run. I never miss a meal, but I do eat on the run. And I think that cooking is therapeutic if you get into that mindset and you get into that zone when it's not a chore and it's a project and fun, which I've I've been in those spaces and places in my life before. And so you're inspiring me as we're talking to crack open a cookbook or two, perhaps yours, And try some new recipes. Yes. Well, the cookbook is coming. It's called The Love of My Life. It's a collection of memories with recipes. It starts from my relationship with my great-grandmother all the way up to my children. And it will just be one story about them and then the recipe. So it's really a book of love stories of the people who helped me to love food. That's why I call it The Love of My Life. So that's coming soon. But you can go to YouTube. Just plug in Glennis's Kitchen or Glennis Albright and all the videos will come up. So if you want to do those waffles, I can do them with you. That would be awesome. Glennis, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story of growth and strength and nourishment. And I'm just excited to follow along on your next chapter. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.